We've been in the Gospel of Luke this semester. We're going to continue that tonight. Uh, we're going to be we're going to start at the end of Luke chapter four, and then we're going to jump a little ways into Luke chapter five. Uh, one of the greatest sports commentating moments and lines, uh, at least that I've heard, and and in American sports history, uh, was in Fe- was on February twenty second, nineteen eighty, during the game that became known as the Miracle. On ice, when Al Michaels, as the clock winded down, exclaimed, Do you believe in miracles? Yes! As the United States hockey team single handedly began the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, not a coincidence, I don't think. Miracles, right? Everybody has a thought on miracles. Uh, the word miracle, the idea of miracles. I don't know what the thought of miracles does for you. Um, maybe you. Maybe you grew up in the church and you've grown up around Jesus and miracles. Just the mention of them, it doesn't really do anything for you because you grew up in church. And like, yeah, those are in the Bible. Those make sense, sure. Uh, perhaps maybe the idea of miracles has lost its luster for you. Uh, maybe because of the casual way in which we throw out and we call a hockey win uh, a miracle or something. Uh, or us beating LSU this weekend. That's not going to be a miracle. We deserve it. Um, that was not my notes. Uh, perhaps you find yourself too rational for miracles. Something like miracles. Perhaps maybe on a personal level, you can very vividly remember a time that you prayed for one. And you got nothing. So I don't know what the idea or the mention or exploring the subject of miracles does for you. Maybe you think of miracles as that thing that maybe, maybe once and for all could provide for you some assurance um, that you've been longing for uh, at least as long as you've been a, a Christian. Maybe miracles are just child's play and not really worth your time. We're asking the question this semester, Doctor Who, as we ask Luke, who was a doctor... Uh, which is pretty important for this story. Um, what, who is this Jesus? And tonight, what Luke wants to tell us here in his gospel is that Jesus did miracles. You want to know who Jesus was? Jesus did miracles. So let's read this. We're going to start at the end of chapter uh, 4, starting in verse 42, and then we're going to jump in to the middle of chapter 5. And when it was day... He departed and he went into a desolate place and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And so he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now skip down to verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. 
On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. He'd come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into their midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say to this man, Your sins are forgiven you? Or say to him, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose and before them and picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he followed. He rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well... Have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. I want to look at three things tonight. I want to give a nod to my campus minister, Les Newsom, and he's now my boss um, because I stole these, the title of these points from him because I liked them a lot. So there we go. The first thing, we're going we're to look at the reality of miracles, the reason for miracles, and then the result of miracles, okay? So the first thing is the reality of miracles. And the main reason I want to address it in the way I'm about to address it for the next couple of minutes is because of the title of our sermon series. We're asking Luke... Who is this Jesus? So we're trying to take the approach as we go through these stories that we're going to look at in the Gospel of Luke, of asking Luke, why did you write this the way that you wrote it? Why did you put it here? Why did you think this is what we needed to see and read and hear um, to know who this Jesus is? And so I want to look and think about, just for a second, the reality of miracles. Um, Christianity is not unique in its belief in miracles, okay? Um, And I actually, I want to use C.S. Lewis's definition of miracles from his book, uh, Miracles, because I think it's great. Lewis defined miracles this way. He says, I use the word miracle to mean an interference with nature by a supernatural power. That's the definition I'm operating here, okay? So we're not talking about like a miracle on ice, the, the improbable odds of the United States hockey team beating Russia or the Soviet Union, right? Uh, no, we're talking about an interference with na- nature or the natural order by a supernatural power. Now here's the thing. Some of you may be saying, well, obviously that's what Christians believe. Uh, and even if you're a skeptic, you're like, well, yeah, I knew Christians believe that. But actually, I, wanna, I want you to look at verse 26 before we even go any further. Uh, because there's a sense in which you can come to miracles and they, they come, become so casual for us. As, well, yeah, I'm a Christian and miracles are in the Bible, so yeah, I guess I believe them. But I find it fascinating in verse 26 that amazement seized them all. They glorified God and they were filled with awe saying, we've seen extraordinary things today. What do they say? 
We have seen extraordinary things today. I mean, things that are not ordinary. The people who saw the healing of the paralytic didn't go, hmm, good one. Right? No, they're like, they're mind, they were like mind blown, right? If they had Twitter, they would have tweeted about it, I guess. Um, no, then the Greek word there is actually paradoxa, right? Sound familiar? Paradox. Something that is true but doesn't seem like it is. Um, we've seen things out of the ordinary. And so I don't think Lewis's definition is something that we should take for granted. But I do think that's what we're seeing here in Jesus' ministry that we're told that he was healing and casting out demons and doing all these things. That they were extraordinary things. And they were extraordinary because they were interferences with the natural order by a supernatural power. Namely, Jesus, because he's God, right? But again, let me go back to what I said earlier. Even that is not a uniquely Christian phenomenon. Okay? It's not. However, I would make this case to you. Accepting the miraculous as true, as they come to us in Scripture is fundamentally necessary and foundational to Christianity. Let me say that again. I do believe that accepting the miraculous as true, as they are told to us in this Bible, is fundamental and foundational to Christianity. Because for starters, the foundational truth claim of Christianity, right, is the greatest miracle of all time. That God Himself took on flesh and became a man and lived and walked this earth for some 30 years. I'm about to be 34 in a few weeks and I realized today that I've probably already outlived Jesus and that kind of like, I don't know if that made me have a crisis moment or what, but that's the greatest miracle of all that God himself became a human, right? And so I would actually suggest you, you are not what the Bible calls a Christian if you don't believe that, that it was a miracle and that happened, right? Not to mention the resurrection. So when we deal with miracles as recorded here, it is central Christian doctrine to accept them as historical and actual interjections of the supernatural into our world. That's what we're being told. We're not being told just to be like, we're not being told to say, well, of course that makes sense. It was Jesus. That, the Bible never says to make sense of it like that. But the Bible does claim that it is extraordinary. It's not just automatically uh, easy to believe. And for some of you, again, this might seem like, okay, well, yeah, I mean, I'm a Christian. I knew, I knew that was kind of part of the gig, right? But others of you realize that like, skepticism of miracles is actually a very common thing. And for a lot of people, it's their biggest hang-up with Christianity. It's like, yeah, I mean, I like Christianity, but you know, like, I don't know if I can believe in all the, mir- the miracle stuff, right? Um, Let's just take one, for instance. Here, here's a popular one, and I'm stealing this straight from Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. You should read it if you haven't. Uh, but one objection to, to religion and Christianity that he takes up in that book is the statement that some people would make that science has disproved miracles. Science has disproved miracles. But here's just what I want you to ask yourself. Has it? Has it? It is natural. It is scientific. To look at the natural world and to look at the natural causes behind the things that happen in the natural world. But what are you really saying if you say that science, the study of natural causes in the natural world, has proven that supernatural things cannot happen? I would suggest to you what you're saying is not a scientific statement. It's actually a philosophical presupposition. And all of you just went to sleep when I said that. But... It's actually, if you've left the realm of science and you've entered the realm of philosophy. 
Because what the leap that you've made is that what you're in effect saying then is that natural causes are the only explanation for the things that we see in this world. And there are people that, that will readily admit to that worldview and that, and that view of things. But the thing is, is that's actually a pretty hard um, um, philosophical, intellectual position to take. That everything in this world absolutely has nat- is a natural cause behind it. Uh, a guy named Alvin Plantiga, he had an illustration to talk about taking that position philosophically. He said it's like the drunk man who stumbles out of, out of the bar at night who insists upon only looking for his keys under the light. Because it's easier to see there, right? Why address this in this way? Why why have to say this out of the gate? Because here's the bigger implication, I think. I wish we had more time to break break all that down. And if you have objections or whatever, I'm, I'm here for that, to talk about that. But hidden in that statement, though, that miracles cannot happen, is usually this sentiment that there cannot be a God who does miracles. That's what ultimately lies behind that statement. And that's why it has to be dealt with. Uh, because the thing is, is, if there is a God, and if there is a God who has created all things and who sustains all the things that he's made, right? then it is actually perfectly logical and perfectly rational to believe that he then can interfere or interject himself into the things that he's created whenever he wants, however he wants. Right? That's the reality of miracles according to Scripture. But let's move on, because that's actually not really usually people's biggest hang-up. The next one is, what are the reasons for the miracles? Because I think this is actually usually the biggest reason for people's hang-up with miracles, is the reason. A complete misconception as to why or how Jesus did them. But I want you to think about this. Think about, just, I want you to think in your head about any one of Jesus' miracles that you can call to mind. Either here or one that you've read about before. Um... One thing that's interesting to note is that the vast majority of what the gospel writers tell us about Jesus was not miracles. Okay, that's one thing to note. But two, I think y'all can come at me with any miracle, even the resurrection of Lazarus. And I think I could make the case to you that all of Jesus' miracles were tame at best. And what I mean by this, think about this. If you were the Son of God, incarnate, right? If you were the one whom Scripture told... Scripture tells you that you are the one by whom, through whom, and to whom are all things that exist, right? Think about it. Don't you think you would have picked like something maybe a little bit bigger to do for a miracle at some point during your ministry? It's like, Jesus, like, why don't you make that mountain disappear? It's like, oh, there it goes. It's behind your ear. I don't know, right? <laughs> um, but that's the thing. Is that there... N- They are never front and center of his ministry. We're told that people fought to him because of them. But then did you notice how the more people fought to him because of miracles, what did he do? He withdrew. And you see that pattern repeat itself throughout the Gospels. Look back at the end of chapter 4, what we read there. What purpose does Jesus say he was sent for? To preach. Now, obviously, I love that because, like, it's my job, right? I was sent for this purpose. I've got to go to the other towns, not to do miracles, but to preach to them. And we looked at that last week. Preach what? To preach good news because the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to captives, to set free those who have been in bondage, those who are oppressed, to give sight to the blind and all that, right? And to do it by my words. 
primarily, Jesus says. And that's it. Over and over again, you see Jesus' miracles, even the ones that we would have thought would have been like the showstoppers. If you read through the Gospels, you constantly see his miracles actually receding into the background of his teaching. And he does it on purpose. The reason for Jesus' miracles are fundamentally and intimately united with his mission and his message. And look what he says again, verse 43, to preach the good news of the kingdom. Remember Matthew, the first words that Mark and Matthew have when Jesus begins his public ministry is that he used to go around saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he says here, I'm here to preach about the kingdom, okay? Miracles were only used by Jesus. I think I could make this case, whatever miracle you brought to me, miracles were always used by Jesus to serve as signs pointing to the truth of a better and higher kingdom that had broken through in the here and now. That was what he was trying to show. And that's what the miracles did. Look forward at at chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. And these people are kind of scoffing because he looks at this guy and says, your sins are forgiven. So he says, okay, well, which one's easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? And you think about it, right? It's actually easier for me to say, son, your sins are forgiven you because y'all don't know if it's true or not. It actually would have taken guts to say, rise and get up and walk. Because if God didn't get up and walk, you'd know he was a fraud. But what does Jesus say? Verse 24. But that you may know, not that I'm awesome, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man, rise and go home. And awe comes over all of them, right? You see, the miracles of Jesus demonstrated something profound about the nature of the kingdom that he was bringing. And he didn't care about his miracles unless they showed that forth. They were to show the nature of the kingdom he was bringing. A world that was not created to have paralytic people. A world that was created not to have leprous people. A world that was not created to have blind and poor and deaf and whatever you name it, suffering people. And so his miracles were always about showing about a better, higher kingdom that had broken through in the here and now, pointing ultimately to the kingdom that would come one day and wipe away it all. If his miracles didn't serve that purpose, he didn't do them. You ever wonder, I mean, you think about it. You ever wonder how the Pharisees could be so antagonistic towards him when they see things like this? There are Pharisees there seeing him do this and they still hate him. Why? Because they understood that his miracles were tied to his mission and his message and they hated him because they hated his mission and his message. You ever wonder why the TBN healers, right? You know, like if you send in $40, I'll send you this handkerchief that I just wiped my forehead with and you'll be blessed or whatever. They're wrong. They're wrong not because the miracle is probably fraudulent. Even if the miracle was real, they're wrong. Why? Because the message is wrong. Because they've totally missed it. You know, something interesting Paul says at the beginning of Galatians when he's talking about how Jesus called him to be an apostle. He says, even if an angel from heaven appears to you and preaches to you another gospel from the one that I preach, let him be accursed. It's a pretty bold statement. If an angel from heaven came and did that, he says, if it's different than the gospel I preach to you, which is the real gospel, let him be accursed. 
Because the point of the miracles is they point us to the truth of who Jesus is, what He came to do, and who He came for. It's the reason for the miracles. Let's move on finally here to the result. What's the result of the miracles? And I, I, we took, I took three stories here, and one of them might not have seemed a miracle to you, but I'll get there. Um, but I want to break these down, each of them, and how they show us the, the end goal, end result of all Jesus' miracles. First, let's look at the leper. The leper shows us thus, as far as the result of Jesus' miracles, that Jesus came to deal with our deepest needs. Jesus came to deal with our deepest needs. We're told about this leper. He's not just a leper. He is full of leprosy, meaning probably it was all over him at this point. Okay, to have leprosy in that day, especially if you had it all over, just meant you were the walking dead. You were a slow, rotting, stinky waiting for your death, walking dead, right? And the thing is, is that this leper is actually violating every social convention and even Levitical law by actually going into the city where Jesus is. Because the lepers were supposed to be outcasts. They're supposed to be outside of the city. No one is supposed to be in contact with them. Why? Because nobody wants to die, right? It's kind of practical. You can imagine the gaffs, the whispers, the scurrying, like mothers shooing their children away as this leper is making his way towards Jesus. And so, if you think the leper's action is outrageous, though, look at what Jesus does. This is what's amazing. If you go back and read all of Luke 4 and 5 on your own, there's one thing that Luke makes clear. All the miracles that Jesus has been doing to this point, he's been doing by the power of his word. He just says things and they're true. What does he do to the leper? He touches him. You don't touch lepers. But Jesus did. He touches him. This man wasn't just sick. He was an outcast. He was an outcast in every sphere of life. He was a physical outcast living outside of the city. He was a social outcast. Outcast from his friends, from his family. He was a spiritual outcast. He was not allowed at the temple or to worship. Jesus wasn't just touching his leprosy and restoring his skin. Jesus was touching and restoring his very soul. You tell me that leper didn't feel it, right? Guys, I don't know about you, but, well, or girls, I don't know who I should address this illustration to, but there's one thing that a guy knows, especially like with a girl that maybe he's crushing on, is that a side hug is like the kiss of death. Uh, just, just, it's might as well scream friend zone, (laughs) um, right? Touch can communicate so much. Can it not? Right. Or how I never get sick and I'm sure I'm not alone. I never get sick. Anytime somebody posts on Facebook or social media, one of those videos of a child who's been deaf from death from birth, getting a cochlear implant and they turn it on and they hear their mother's voice for the first time. It's like, man, this man is giving me goosebumps just thinking about it, right? We know the power of touch and of sense, right? Jesus reaches out to this leper, not for his leprosy, but to touch and restore his whole person. He comes to restore and heal our deepest needs. And the thing is, is that he reaches out and he touches the leper. He was not worried about what it was going to do to him. And so that that tells us is Jesus is not worried about getting his hands dirty. He really is 
able to deal with your junk. And there really is nothing that's going to keep him from doing that. Some of you need to hear that so badly. Because some of you, you walk around or you live this thing called the Christian life and you just think that there's some things in your life that you really truly don't believe Jesus will touch. If anything, this story tells you you're wrong. Let's look at the paralytic. The leper one tells us he deals with deepest needs. Paralytic, in the paralytic, it's pretty bold. Jesus wants to tell us what our greatest need is. Our greatest need is to be right with God. Period. Our greatest need is to be right with God. Can you imagine the scene? I, I love thinking about this scene. Because in my head, it just it had to have looked like one of those like cheap, low-budget church plays, right? As like guy, like tiles are opened up, spotlight comes down, guy like in only wearing sheets is like lowered by a rope. You have to imagine how interesting this scene was. And then all these people are packed in this house. And so they're all like, oh, where's the popcorn? Let's get ready for the miracle, right? And so everybody's expecting another miracle, another healing that they can go home and tweet about. And Jesus goes, man, your sins are forgiven you. And I just want you to think about like the people here and they were like, Wait, what? What did you say? Our greatest need is to be right with God. Our greatest problem is our sin. This man's greatest problem was not that he couldn't walk. Jesus is being very front and center with that. Our greatest problem is that we're all sick. And that's why Jesus says in verse 31, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. RUF campus minister uh, Sammy Rhodes wrote an article for Desiring God a few years back called College Doesn't Change Your Heart, It Reveals It. Uh, And in that article, he quotes C.S. Lewis uh, talking about how he became a Christian. This is what C.S. Lewis said. He was got in the car to go to the zoo. It's a great story. For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And there I found what appalled me, a zoo of lust a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. That's C.S. Lewis describing how he became a Christian. Okay? And Sammy Rhodes goes on to say, it's not college that changes your heart so much as it reveals it. It isn't the secularity or the immorality so much that is to be feared. But according to Jesus, it's the propensity of our hearts to long for and cling to the wrong things. You know, your generation is very much into social justice, and this is a very good thing, right? Like, all of you want to go to Africa and, like, cure the water problem or whatever. Uh, And those are all awesome things, right? But I want you to think about it. Um, Think about what's true of these miracles and every miracle that Jesus did. Every single one of them, no matter how showy. Even Lazarus. They were temporary. This man very well could have fallen and gotten paralyzed again. The leprous man very well could have bumped into the wrong person and gotten leprosy again. Lazarus died again after he was resurrected. The results, physical, were temporary. And so what that tells us is our efforts, our best efforts, are superficial at best. Especially if the deepest, greatest need is not dealt with. Are we doing mission? Are we seeing mission? Are we thinking about mission the way that Jesus did? 
Let's move on. The last one here, Levi. And what I would suggest to you is the greatest miracle of the whole bunch. Why is that? Well, here's the thing. Tax collectors were the scum of the earth, okay, in this society, especially Jewish tax collectors, because Jewish tax collectors were traitors because they worked for Rome. They were unclean because they spent so much time with Gentiles, and they were thieves because they were greedy and abused their power. People hated tax collectors, okay? You look at the other two that we looked at. The other two, one of them comes to Jesus and the other one is brought to Jesus. But with the worst one in the bunch, what happens? Jesus goes and gets him. Jesus goes after him. Jesus goes and finds him. Jesus initiates conversation with him. Jesus performed a miracle in going after and later making a scoundrel a part of his inner circle. Levi, by the way, Matthew, the same one that wrote a gospel. And to top it all off, he sits down to eat with him and his friends, who you notice all his friends are what? (laughs) Tax is the only friends he can make, are other tax collectors. For Jews, sitting down for a meal was a sign of spiritual fellowship. And so you think about it, with this guy, with Levi and with the leper, what Jesus was doing was showing that his kingdom was going to be a place for those who used to be on the outside. And again, that's why the Pharisees hated him. Because they thought the inside was theirs. And not, they weren't going to let this Jesus come and let start letting other people in. You know, I say, I didn't say it this week, but you know, one of the things I like to say at RUF is that we want this to be a safe place. What does that mean? At the end of the day, I just like to think of it as this. Jesus was a safe place for people. All kinds of people. Even Pharisees, oddly enough. What does that mean to us? Taking all this together, what does this all mean? Taking it all together, all of this shows us how Jesus would ultimately meet all of our needs through the greatest miracle of all time. You know, we're so prone to think of miracles as kind of suspensions of the natural order. It's like, let's, let's put all those natural laws on pause to do a miracle real quick. I think it's kind of easy to think of miracles like that. Uh, and we're so prone to think like how definitive a proof a miracle would be. But you read the story. You read this story that we read tonight and you read other ones in the Gospels. Some believed and worshipped and glorified God because of what Jesus did. Others didn't. Others shrugged their shoulders and said, meh. Think about the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels. He heals the sick, feeds the hungry, he raises the dead. Suspensions of the natural order, at least as we know it, sure. But ultimately, every single one of them are restorations of the natural order. Restorations of the natural order because it's restoring the natural order to what it was intended to be. Because you see, what Jesus goes around during his life and ministry heartbroken about is that the world is not the way that it should be. That we are not the way that it should be. That he did not make this world to be full of hunger, to be full of poverty, to be full of death, to be full of depression, to be full of anxiety, to be full of sexual shame or abuse. You name it. Jesus knew that the world was not made to contain those things. And so what he did was he went about trying to show that he was there, that he had come to redeem it where it had gone wrong and to heal it where it was broken. 
In other words, the miracles over and over again are to give us, whether we believe them or not, a foretaste of that world we so desperately long for. All of us. And how exactly would he do it? Think about it. Touches a leper. He forgives a paralytic. And he fellowships with a tax collector. That's how he did it. And the most amazing thing is that he knew what it would cost. To touch the leper, he was saying, I'll be made unclean for you. To forgive the paralytic, I will be treated as guilty for you. And to fellowship with the scoundrel, I will be despised and rejected and even have the fellowship I have with my father broken for you. Something amazing that Jesus says later on in Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke chapter 10, a little before it, Jesus has sent out 72 followers of his uh, in pairs to go preach and to do miracles. And they come back, and what Luke tells us is they come back to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, you'll never believe it. Like, demons did what we told them to do, and like, we were healing. It was awesome. Jesus' response is magnificent. Don't rejoice that spirits are subject to you. Rather rejoice because your name is written in heaven. I think that's the lasting question, isn't it? Is that something that you can rejoice in tonight? It's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, even on our best days, it's hard to take in miracles for what they are. We pray that you would work yet another miracle tonight in our hearts. Give us hearts to believe. Give us hearts to love you. Give us hearts to know that our shame doesn't define us, that our guilt doesn't define us, that our anxiety doesn't define us, that the sadness that we seem to wake up with every day, even though we have no idea what's causing it, doesn't define us. But that your love poured out most tangibly through the blood of your Son, is what defines us. It's a miracle. We just ask that you would work it tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.